Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you live from New York. Today on the program... The coronation of Charles III. How different will his reign be from that of his mother? We will explore. Also, the curious case of the alleged attack on the Kremlin, China's power play in the Asia-Pacific, and the American economy. I'll talk about all that and more with an all-star panel. Finally, Bernard-Henri Lévy started filming in Ukraine just days after the war began. I'll talk to him about his new documentary, Slava Ukraini, and how he thinks this tragic war will end. But first, here's my take. We now have a Biden doctrine. The Biden administration has set it out in a striking recent address by the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan. Sullivan outlines the administration's international economic policy, but it is really the overarching framework for President Biden's approach to the world, defining in lucid terms the ideas behind the slogan of foreign policy for the middle class. Sullivan is a fiercely intelligent thinker and skilled policymaker who has come to dominate policy in the administration. His speech showcases these talents, and many of the specific initiatives are smart and worth pursuing. But the overall approach left me worried along three broad dimensions. First, it is a fundamentally pessimistic view of America's recent history. Sullivan recalls the glory days of American economic power after 1945, but then notes that in the last few decades, that strength has waned. He talks about the hollowing out of the country's industrial base, the export of American jobs, and the atrophying of industries. We stopped really focusing on building, Sullivan said, as he summarized the subsidies, tariffs, bans, and investments that are at the heart of Biden's new approach. Ironically, only a couple of weeks before Sullivan made his speech, The Economist had a cover story on America's astonishing economic record. It begins with 1990, often used as the start of the rot in the narrative of decline, and points out that despite the rise of huge new economies like China and India, the U.S.'s share of global GDP has stayed roughly the same as in 1990, around 25% then and now. America's share of the G7's economic output actually increased substantially from 40% to 58%. Today, the vast majority of the world's top 10 companies are American. In 1989, four were American, 
six were Japanese. As for building, during these decades, America created and built the information economy, surely one of the greatest transformations and advances in human history. In 1990, the great fear in America was of being overtaken by Japan, then seen as the predatory economic power that was eating our lunch. But as The Economist notes in the same edition, in 1990, America's income per person was just 17% higher than Japan. Today, it is a staggering 54% higher. Look at demographics or energy or leading technology companies and everywhere you see America in a dominant position. Perhaps we got something right. The other worry I have is of the efficacy of large-scale government intervention in the economy. Sullivan outlines the need for federal subsidies in key areas, either to maintain the technological lead or for national security reasons. Brilliant people like Sullivan may think they are well-positioned to identify the key strategic industries that need support. But historically, these kind of interventions have not gone so well. Companies focus on lobbying the government rather than responding to the market. Subsidies once in place become eternal and innovation slows down. In the 1980s and 90s, Japan's much-admired technocrats picked industries and companies to push the country into the lead. In the words of a Harvard Business Review essay, their strategic investments in artificial intelligence, maglev trains, micro-machines, and HDTV all proved to be multi-million dollar debacles. Finally, Sullivan insisted that these policies were not designed to be America first or alone, but the facts are clear. Almost every element of Joe Biden's economic policy has a Buy America component to it. Its green subsidies are causing some European companies to build new plants in America. This sounds great, but not to the Europeans who must now offer industries their own bribes to invest at home instead. It conjures up an autarkic vision of the world that is quite far removed from reality. The iPhone, for example, is made with products from dozens of countries across six continents, though the vast majority of its profits accrue in the United States. And as the U.S. preaches the need for a rules-based international order, it is worth noting that it is violating the core of that order. Every one of these policies is in violation of the letter or spirit of the WTO and its framework of open trade. This hypocrisy is rarely discussed in the U.S., but frequently and angrily pointed out abroad. The greatest challenge for Americans over the last few decades has been that middle-class wages have not kept up with rising costs of living. That problem will surely get exacerbated by raising costs of goods throughout the economy through tariffs and industrial policy. As Larry Summers points out, protecting the 60,000 workers in the American steel industry sounds smart, but when you do it by raising the price of steel, the 6 million workers who use steel as an input in their goods all suffer. A foreign policy that produces persistent systemic inflation will fail to deliver for the middle class, who are, as Joe Biden often says, its intended beneficiaries. Go to CNN.com slash for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started.
the freshly crowned king being kissed on the cheek by the next in line for the throne. That seems like a perfect clip to frame a conversation about the future of the British monarchy. And I asked Joanna Coles to come in and talk to me about exactly that. Born in Britain, Coles is a longtime journalist, editor, author, and executive. You have too many titles to, to <laughs> too describe. Many, too many titles. But former editor-in-chief of everything, Marie Claire, you know, Cosmo. Um, what, what do you, how do you contrast this coronation with the last one? And this is the longest gap between coronations in yeah, history. Yeah, it's been 70 years, and it's extraordinary to think how the world has changed. When Princess Elizabeth was crowned in 1952, Britain was still a huge dominant global power. And she actually was officially, when she became queen, the head of state of 32 different countries. Yeah. The, uh, the empires obviously slimmed down countries, you know, seceding uh, faster than you can say their names. And actually, she was in Kenya when she learned that her father, George VI, had died and that she would become queen. And of course, Kenya... 10 years later, you know, declared independence. So Britain's own role in the world is very different. Uh, the coronation at the time, they had 7,000 people in the cathedral uh, or in the abbey, Westminster Abbey, and they were largely, frankly, toffs. They were people, you, you know, who within the class system in Britain felt utterly entitled to attend. And what you saw in King Charles is... Uh, coronation was a very different Britain, much more inclusive, lots of health workers turning up after the COVID crisis instead of sort of, you know, baronets and coronets of God knows where, for God knows why reason they're in the House of Lords. Uh, Charles is trying to do this sort of slim down monarchy and modernize it. Do you think it'll work? I was struck by if you look at the statistics on what part of Britain supports uh, the monarchy. What is striking is, I think we have a chart there. Uh, as you get older, your support grows. So, you know, young people, it's at 32%. Old people is at 78%. Uh, d d will he succeed in making the monarchy relevant? Well, he says he wants to slim it down. But what did we see yesterday? An enormous global event. And if you think of what's happened to Britain politically, not only has it lost its empire, but it had its own self-imposed decision to leave Europe. So it's right. this little island on the edge of Europe. What it can do, what Brown Britain is now is this sort of brilliant creative event making process um, you know you think of Peter Morgan and the crown some of the top shows on Netflix are British you know British written British directed British actors you saw Emma Thompson very much in evidence at the coronation yesterday and they say they're slimming it down but what they're actually using it for is a shop window I think to promote brand Britain. And it's a luxury brand. It's the creative industries that Britain is really good at. And this was the shop window to see them. Charles, as Prince of Wales, was very outspoken, as, you know, as much as a royal can be, about the environment, um, about architecture, about sustainable farming. Uh, you know, he had views on Islam. I actually thought mostly he was right about most of what he talked about. But you can't do that as king, can you? 
Well, well, we'll find out, won't we? I mean, what's interesting to your point is that he was often ahead of his time, so huge believer in addressing climate change, big convener of thinkers. I think what you're going to see is a sort of think tank monarchy. I mean, Tina Brown, who's written brilliantly about the royal family, talks about him being a transitional monarch. Yeah. And then you think of William sitting at the coronation yesterday. What must he have been thinking watching his father, especially in that very moving moment that you showed where he bends to, to kiss him? Um, but I think Charles will be a think tank monarchy. He was told by Liz Truss, the British Prime Minister, who literally lasted less famously than a head of lettuce, that he couldn't go to COP. So he didn't go to COP. But what he did do rather brilliantly was convene his own version of COP at the weekend, which actually everybody said was much more interesting and much more thoughtful than COP. So I think he will be, he will be able to do this in a, in a thoughtful, entertaining way, which keeps... The, um, keeps the monarchy relevant, but doesn't make it too provocative. We have a minute left. Harry, a any thoughts on that? Oh, I felt sad for him coming in like that. And I wonder what he thought as he sort of came in on his own and slipped away in a black car on his own. And, you know, he said he wanted to be back home for his son's fourth birthday. But what could have been a better birthday present than to be in the pageant of your grandfather being crowned king? First time in 70 years. So I hope that they resolve it. I was glad he came. I think people in Britain felt glad he came. But I, I felt, you know, every, every parent sees that and has some inkling of what's going on. But I'm glad he came. Joanna Coles, always a pleasure. Next on GPS, mass shootings, looming debt ceiling crisis, bitterly divided Washington. How is the U.S. perceived by the rest of the world? We'll be back in a moment with a global panel. There's a ton I want to talk about with today's panel, so let's get straight to it. Zanny Minton Beddoes, the editor-in-chief of The Economist, joins us from London. And Michael Fololove is normally 14 time zones away, but is on set today with me in New York. He's the executive director of the Lowy Institute, an international think tank based in Sydney, Australia. Um, Michael, tell me 14 time zones away. What does Joe Biden's America look like to you? Look, I think he deserves more credit than he gets. I think he's shaping up as a, a foreign policy president of the first rank. If you think he responded to the Russian invasion of Ukraine with a masterclass in statecraft and alliance management, um, Russia looks much weaker now. NATO is larger and stronger. In Asia, I would say that he has managed the relationship with China as well as could be imagined. You see US allies moving towards the United States. You also see around the world connections between democracies quickening. You see democracies reaching out towards each other. Uh, and this comes off the back of the trauma of the Trump years. So I would say from an allied perspective, tr Biden looks good. Um, Zanny, you've, you've, you guys did that editorial, that, that, that uh, cover story that I mentioned uh, in my opening uh, take. Um, do you feel like that sense of America's economic strength is felt uh, around the world uh, and in Europe in particular? I think it is. The sense of the strength is felt, but so too is what you brought out in your commentary, which is a sense that America has now kind of changed the rules and that the upholder of the rules-based order 
is now going along on its own industrial policy that is not at all rule-based. And I'm listening to Michael's assessment, very upbeat assessment. I, sh I share a lot of what he says, and I think certainly after the debacle of Afghanistan, there's been an enormous success in Ukraine so far in building alliances. But there's, there's two areas that I would point to where I think there is an issue with the Biden administration. And the first is what you spoke about at the beginning of the show, this industrial policy that is really an America first industrial policy. It is not focused primarily on the rest of the world. And although increasingly there is an attempt to bring in alliances, this is an America that is not really open for market access trade deals. And that is not lost on the rest of the world. And actually, one other thing, the big thing that I think the U.S. is falling short on is bringing what, what people like to call the global south, but bringing the rest of the world with it. It has clearly, the Biden administration has continued as tough a policy on China, in fact, in many ways tougher than President Trump. And it has united the transatlantic alliance over Ukraine. But a lot of the rest does not support Ukraine and is very skeptical of what the U.S. is doing. And I think to be sustainable in the medium and long term, those two things really have to be addressed. What do you, what do you think about that? In particular, you know, this issue of the global south. I don't know if you saw, there's a very interesting article in Foreign Affairs by mm -hmm. uh, Ashley Tellis, one of the smartest strategic analysts uh, on uh, Asia. And he says India is clearly going its own way. Uh, it is not becoming a, a dutiful American ally. It will not side with America in the, you know, kind of the, the, uh, the, the race about, uh, with regard to China. It needs China for trade just as much as it needs America for some security assurances. Mm. Well, there's no question that Chinese economy is so large it exerts a tremendous magnetic effect on every country in our region. There's no way that there's no doubt that India has its own concerns and will and 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 will chart its own course. But but I'd say to you that notwithstanding that, everybody in Asia wants their own place in the sun. No one wants to live in the shadow of China. And so most countries in my part of the world want a leading role for the United States. And yes, they may have some concerns about American policy from time to time. But I think in general they see steadiness from the administration, they see the resilience of America and its economy. Um, so, so that's why I feel positive actually. Zani, will, what will all this look like if there's a kind of serious uh, game of chicken played with the debt crisis? Well, if it's a game of chicken that ends badly, it could be catastrophic. But Fareed, you know, I, I lived in whatever, in Washington for almost two decades, and I've been through this several times, this debt ceiling game of chicken. And each time, uh, you know, something is resolved at the last minute. But let's be clear, this is an utterly crazy way to run fiscal policy. This artificial, politically imposed deadline that causes this kind of fake sense of a debt crisis and a default. But notwithstanding that, the U.S. does actually have a medium and long term fiscal problem. We have a piece in this week's issue show, which shows that I think for the last half century, U.S. budget deficits averaged about three and a half percent of GDP. Going forward, if you add on top of the official projections what the likely cost of this new industrial policy is going to be, if you add on the probability that there'll be a recession at some point, you're looking at seven percent of GDP budget deficits. That's twice as big. So there has to be some some kind of agreement to cut spending, but also to raise revenue. But, you know, both sides have put off entitlement reform. No one will touch that. No one will really do proper broad-based tax increases. So there's a, this kind of very weird situation where you have a pantomime 
sort of display of brinkmanship right now, which which could end a disaster. I mean, I'm not going to bet on it. Usually I think it gets sorted out. But who knows? Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, says, you know, default could come as June 1st, the end of the ability to do extraordinary measures. But even if they get through that, there really is a fiscal problem that at some point needs to be dealt with. Uh, yeah, I, th- I think you're right about the long-term. Uh, pro- the long-term problem is that for a while it's now been clear that Americans are very comfortable with the level of spending that the Democrats propose and the level of taxes that Republicans <laughs> propose. That leaves a very large gap, which we make up by borrowing. Um, all right, we're going, to, we're going to talk more about everything next on GPS. One of the things I want to bring up is there are only six countries in the world that have nuclear-powered submarines roaring the oceans. There will soon be a seventh. Australia. Those new Western Pacific-based subs are meant to send a major message to China. Will Beijing hear it and what will the consequences be when we come back? And we are back here on GPS with Zanny minton Beddoes, the editor-in-chief of The Economist, and Michael Fullerlove, the executive director of Australia's Lowy Institute. Michael, um, so you have these new nuclear-powered subs. The Chinese, I'm sure, are not happy. Uh, but Australia and China have gone through some pretty rough times. The Chinese had those 14 demands, and mm. then they, they blocked trade with, with, with Australia. Where do things stand now? Well, Australia's relationship has changed a lot with China in recent years because China's changed. China's become much harder-edged and... They didn't like Australian policy and they attempted a a campaign really of economic coercion against Australia. It sort of petered out because of the high price of iron ore. There's been a change of government. um, In Australia. In Australia. So what you have, certainly not in China. So what you have now is from Australia a dual track policy, diplomacy and deterrence. On the diplomacy side, stabilising the relationship with China, ending the silent treatment, talks between leaders and foreign ministers. But also on the deterrence side, as, as you say, investing in new capabilities, including the nuclear-powered submarines, that will give us more deterrent punch. And trade is back to normal. Well, trade actually at a macro level continued. At, at, at the macro level, it continued because of the high price of iron ore. Individual, there are still trade blockages on individual sectors and firms, but, but in general, trade didn't slow down much to the consternation of the Chinese. Zanny, how does this, this look in Europe? Because, the, you know, I keep hearing from European uh, statesmen and businessmen that, look, Europe has to do business with China. We, they, they will not be able to join in an American blockade. But yet the, the, the U.S. is pushing pretty hard. Where does all this end for Europe? So I think there's a lot of questioning going on in Europe and a lot of soul searching about where exactly the Europeans should be. And you you will remember the very, very angry reaction in Europe to those comments of President Emmanuel Macron when he came back, basically saying, you know, Taiwan was not a European issue. Uh, And so I think the Europeans are trying to work this out. And interestingly, I've noticed in the last few weeks a sort of tad of a change of rhetoric from Washington, which I think is designed to make it easier for the Europeans. In that speech from Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, that you described at the beginning of the show, where he laid out the Biden doctrine, if you will, he mentioned that the focus was not decoupling, but was, and he quoted Ursula von der Leyen, the European Union president, um, European Commission president, to say that it was de-risking. And when I was in Washington a couple of weeks ago, everybody was very keen to tell me that this was about de-risking. 
and that the US did not want decoupling, and Secretary Yellen had said the same thing. Now, the trouble is that all the other elements of uh, the US strategy point, they, they like to use this analogy that the US needs a, uh, a small yard with a high wall. Um, and that has been widely interpreted to be using US economic weaponry to keep, essentially push China, keep China back in foundational technologies. And in Europe, there's, there's a lot of concern about that, because on the one hand, I think there's growing recognition in Europe and growing worry about China. But on the other hand, as you say, particularly in countries like Germany, there's an incredible um, economic relationship with China. Companies like BASF and the German car companies essentially you know, wouldn't be at all where they were without China. Zani, briefly tell me, what, was, what, what, what is your sense of what is happening in China? Because you were in China recently for that annual China Development Forum. How do they, how do the Chinese perceive what's going on? There is real anger. I was shocked, Fareed. I went back, as you say, a few weeks ago. I hadn't been there since 2019, four years. A real hardening and a sense that the United States is a bullying power determined to keep China down. They want us, uh, one scholar said to me, to be a fat cat, not the tiger that the Chinese consider themselves to want to be. And I came back really very gloomy, having been both in, in Washington and in, in Beijing, that both sides see the other as you know, a mortal threat in some ways, and that this is, this is a really dangerous position to be in. Subsequently, there has, I think, been some attempt to, to moderate the rhetoric, but it's, it's really grim out there. This is, this is a relationship in terrible, terrible shape. Michael, I have to ask you before, before we go, you mm -hmm. are Australian, mm -hmm. which means that uh, King Charles is technically your head of state. Mm -hmm. um, what, what is that issue looking like uh, in Australia? There, was a, there had been a push for a kind of republicanism mm -hmm. and taking the, the, the British monarch off mm -hmm. the European currency. Where do things stand and what do you think? Do you think Charles will be the last royal uh, head of state of Australia? Well, let me say, uh, look, I thought the images from London were incredible. They showed us again that no one does ceremonial like the Brits. I like Charles. I like his sense of humour. I think he was ahead of his time on the environment. But I'm an Australian, and I think that Australia's head of state should be an Australian. And I think most Americans would be sympathetic to that. So I wish Charles well, long live the king. But in the long term, I think our head of state should be one of us. And is that what the, uh, what, what does the politics look like? What do the polls look like in Australia? Would most Australians share your views? Look, I think if you expressed it that way, yes. But you, when you get into the interstices of what the model is and how we change the government, it becomes complicated. But, but I think when, when we look ahead, we have to be confident enough to have affection and fondness for Britain and for the monarchy, but ultimately know that our future depends on ourselves. And that means that all officers under the Australian Constitution, in my opinion, should be held by Australians. Michael Fogelove, Zanny Minton Bedders, always a pleasure to have you guys on. We will, uh, we will try to reconvene this global panel soon. Next on GPS, the French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy has spent a lot of the last year in the frontline areas of Ukraine. Based on those trips, he has strongly held beliefs on how this war will end. Back with him to, to explain all that in a moment. We don't often equate philosophers with bravery, but Bernard-Henri Lévy breaks the mold in many ways. 
Since the start of the war in Ukraine, he's traveled to many of the frontline locations we've all heard about in the news, places like Kharkiv, Kherson, Odessa, and Bakhmut. He went to bear witness and brought a film crew to document what he saw. The result is an impressive new documentary called Slava Ukraini, meaning Glory to Ukraine. It's out now in select theaters. Bernard-Henri Levy, welcome. Great Thank to have you, you. Farid. Um, I want to ask you about this issue of, of bravery just to begin with, because it's always struck me as one of the, it's sometimes underrated, you know, when you think about, we often think about smarts and intelligence. And, but if you think of great leadership, like with Zelensky, bravery, courage is one of the most important things. Do you think that's trained? Do you think it's inborn? It's one of the most important and one of the most forgotten. We were so surprised when Zelensky decided to stay. We were so surprised when the whole Ukrainian people stood at his side. It was absolutely unexpected. None of of us waited that. And nevertheless, it happened. A whole people reconnected with the great tradition of brave citizenship, like in the beginning of America, like in Athens, in the ancient Greece, like in the French Revolution. This is what happened in Ukraine. And this is one of the great events which we, which we saw. When you went on the front lines and you talked to these, these soldiers, they're up against a you know, very formidable foe. And the Russians are hammering and, and they're doing things that are really we haven't seen since World War II destroying whole cities, bombing, uh, you know, the sewage plants and the water facilities and the hospitals. Are they losing their their nerve? Are they losing their, their courage? I never saw that. Maybe it happens, but I never saw that. I was in a lot of uh, hot places, and what I saw is quiet bravery, not the stupid bravery, which is a fake one, going to to the enemy, but um, a well-mastered bravery everywhere. No, losing their nerves, never. Protecting the weak, uh, putting the old uh, people under shelter, going to fetch them under fire. This I saw many times, and this is what I report in the documentary in many, many scenes. You know that people look at the strategic, uh, the strategic situation from afar and they say, look, the Ukrainians will, do, will, will make some gains in, these, in this coming counteroffensive. But at the end of the day, the Russians are dug in in Crimea and in that core part of the Donbass that they took in 2014. So they will have, there will have to be some negotiation. There will have to be some settlement. What do you say? I don't believe that. Number one... If there is a compromise, it will be a disaster for all of us. When you do compromise with someone who decided that we are his enemy and that he declared a total war against the whole civilized world, it's a very bad thing. A compromise with Hitler, a compromise with Putin uh, is for all of us a bad thing, number one. Number two, um, I don't think it would be necessary What I observed on the ground during these six months of shooting and of footage, each time the Ukrainians decided with their wise bravery 
to launch an offensive, they won. And sometimes, very often, the Russians did not even try to resist, in Kherson, for example. So uh, when the Ukrainians will decide to, that they are strong enough, equipped enough to go to Donetsk, to go to, to Crimea, they will. And you will be surprised how little the Russians will resist. Number three, the only thing which is missing and which we have to do is to give the equipment and to give it strongly, quickly, and not in the incremental way, which is the motto and the doctrine of too many diplomats. If we give what they need, things can go quick and the war can stop and we can spare some human lives. You are a big supporter of Emmanuel Macron in, in France. On this issue, do you think Macron is searching for a compromise, a solution? He's, he still talks to Putin. Um, do you think he agrees with what you're saying? I think so. I, 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 I think that Macron um, never searched for a compromise with Putin. He spoke with him at the beginning, not to search a compromise, to appeal to what he believed could remain in his mad brain of Putin of reason. He tried to probably to explain to him that he was making an historical mistake, etc., etc., but not to make a compromise. There is one point on which Macron never changed. Putin, Russia has to be defeated. Ukraine has to get the victory. And the victory means what Zelensky will say. Macron always said that. And I had the privilege, by the way, to be um, asked by Macron to be there in his last man-to-man meeting with Zelensky in Paris. They had a meeting two or three months ago. I was in the room with André Yermak, President Zelensky, President Macron. And I heard and I saw the position of Macron was very clear. The victory has to be yours, President Zelensky. And what victory means, it's you to decide, not us, not diplomats, not America, not France, not Europe. It's your country, it's your combat, and it's your decision. And this is the position of France. Bernard-Henri Levy, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Farid. Thank you. So go to movie theaters and watch the movie Slava Ukraini. Next on GPS, some might say little changed yesterday for Britain's head of state. After all, he woke up as King Charles and went to sleep as King Charles. But he represents a monarchy that has changed enormously over the past century. That story when we come back. And now for the last look. King Charles III has had to plan his coronation with careful diplomacy, navigating touchy personal issues like what to do with his son, Harry, and his brother, Andrew. But that is nothing compared to one of his predecessors, George IV, who insisted that his own wife be denied entry to his coronation in 1821. Amongst his wife, Caroline of Brunswick's offenses were eating raw onions, flirting promiscuously, and swearing like a sailor. In fact, King George pressured the British Parliament to bring an adultery case against her, hoping their marriage would be dissolved by the time he was anointed king. The plan didn't work. 
Caroline, with all her earthy qualities, was loved by the commoners, who were growing ever more discontented with the British monarchy. Added into the mix were an unlikable king and a press that took Caroline's side. She was, in many ways, Britain's first tabloid princess, or queen, actually, but she didn't enjoy it for long. She died of an illness a few weeks after George IV was crowned. So coronations have been much crazier and messier in the past than these days. In fact, the British monarchy was tamed and transformed by a coronation, that of Queen Elizabeth in 1953. It happened because this thousand-year-old tradition was, for the first time, televised. Ahead of the event, the BBC repurposed old military transmitters in order to expand its coverage to reach a broader public. TV sales in the country skyrocketed in anticipation. An estimated 27 million people in the UK tuned in, which is more than half the population at the time. The British Royal Air Force even flew bombers carrying film canisters of the event across the pond to be broadcast on American networks. Since then, television has shaped the modern British monarchy, and the royal family has essentially become televised performance theater for all of us. But where the crowning of Queen Elizabeth featured a fresh-faced young ingenue with endless promise, King Charles's coronation brings with it a veteran character and waning public interest. In a recent poll in the UK conducted for CNN by Savanta, about half said they had little or no interest in the coronation, and only 20% said they were very interested in it. Young people were particularly unamused, with 57% saying they were not too or not at all interested. The firm, as the British monarchy is often called due to its function as a business, has taken note, opting for a slimmed-down coronation and an appeal to the public mood this time around. The sacred oil used to anoint Charles as king was vegan. And as the country faces a cost-of-living crisis that has left a record number of British families relying on food banks, the royals decided to skip the tradition of parading gold bars in front of the king this year. Still, the spectacle of it all, however unpalatable to some, was viewed by millions and millions around the world. As New York Magazine points out, most of us Americans care about the coronation of King Charles III only because we're messy ex-Brits who live for drama. And right they are, according to Nielsen ratings, roughly 11.4 million people in the United States tuned in for Queen Elizabeth's funeral in September. Two decades ago, an even more staggering number, a reported 33.2 million Americans, watched Princess Diana's funeral. The magic and the misery of the monarchy has played out in other ways on TV and in film to global audiences, where critically acclaimed series like The Crown have been ratings gold. Netflix has even started production on a new biopic called Scoop, which offers a behind-the-scenes look at the now infamous BBC Newsnight interview with Prince Andrew that focused on his ties to the pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. And to keep things exciting, the dissident royals have ventured into the latest innovation in drama, reality TV. The six-hour-long series Harry and Meghan is Netflix's highest-viewed documentary of all time, with 28 million households streaming in just the first four days in order to find out why the couple decided to leave the royal family. Prince Harry's book Spare was a record-breaking success, 
despite being criticized as a whiny, out-of-touch memoir that unnecessarily airs the family's dirty laundry. That sentiment was immortalized on an episode of South Park. In your new book, where? How the monarchy holds up under King Charles's reign is still to be seen. But we will keep watching for sure. Because if we've learned anything over the last 70 years, it is that royal content is always king. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. Don't forget, if you miss a show, go to cnn.com slash Fareed for a link to my iTunes podcast. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.